Next, ReachMD's special series, Focus on Diabetes. This month, we're taking an in-depth look at diabetes, the disease now affecting nearly 1 in 10 Americans. Tune in all this month for the latest research, treatments, and prevention methods to gain new insights for your practice. We know that systemic corticosteroids increase the risk of diabetes, but what about in patients who take high-dose inhaled corticosteroids? How do we best manage the risk-benefit equation in patients with COPD? I'm your host, Dr. Mary Luchars, and with me today is Dr. Chris Latour, who's Assistant Professor in the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine at Portland VA Medical Centre, Portland, Oregon. Welcome, Dr. Latour. Thanks for having me. Now, we're going to talk about the association of inhaled corticosteroids use with serum glucose concentration. How many years do you think doctors have been trying to work out what this association actually is? Oh, I think for quite a while. When I look back at some of the studies, they go back, I think, to the 80s or so that people have been worried about, you know, some of the side effects of inhaled steroids. Now, you did a prospective cohort study of U.S. veterans with COPD. How many subjects were included in that study? I think it was about 1,700 subjects total out of a original cohort of about 30,000 veterans. In the study that you did, between what years were the patients treated? I think the patients were treated from about 1996 to 2001. And what was the instigator for doing this study or participating in it for you? For me, I was just been very interested in the potential side effects that are associated with inhaled corticosteroid use. And in this particular study we're discussing, do you know what the mean daily dose of corticosteroids you used was in these patients? So we converted all their inhaled corticosteroids to a triamcinolone equivalent dose based on some guidelines from the NHLBI. And so in triamcinolone equivalents, the mean daily dose was around 600 micrograms. So what was the main finding of this study? So we found that in general, in patients with diabetes, there was a dose-response association between the dose of triamcinolone units of inhaled corticosteroids they were using with their serum glucose concentrations. In people without diabetes, we didn't see any association between inhaled corticosteroid dose and serum glucose concentration. So what other evidence is there for the association of inhaled corticosteroid use with serum glucose concentration and the increased risk of diabetes? At the time of this study, this was the only one that had looked at serum glucose levels specifically. Some studies had looked at either a new diagnosis of diabetes or uh, new use of anti diabetes medicines. So, for instance, in some of the randomized controlled trials of inhaled corticosteroids, they would report that there was no increased incidence of diabetes that they saw. The paper entitled Inhaled Corticosteroids and the Risk of Diabetes Onset and Progression that was published in the American Journal of Medicine included nearly 400,000 subjects. Do you think that this is the first study to really show that inhaled corticosteroids do increase the risk of diabetes? I think so. As opposed to our study, which found that there was an increased risk of higher glucose levels in people who already had diabetes. I think this new study provides some evidence that the doses of inhaled steroids that we're currently using may increase the risk of incident diabetes as well. In the trial, how do you separate the patients taking only inhaled corticosteroids from those taking both inhaled and oral? So in our study, that was we couldn't completely separate them, so we did several things to help control for that. So first, we excluded glucose concentrations from people that were hospitalized at the time. And then we also adjusted the analysis based on people who had taken 
systemic corticosteroids as well. Above which dosage level is the risk highest? Well, so we saw just a dose response. So every 100 microgram increase in triamcinolone units was associated with an increased serum glucose concentration. So I can't say which dose you'd have to worry about it. Do patients with COPD always need inhaled corticosteroids? I know it's controversial. According to the most widely used guidelines from GOLD, the Global Obstructive Lung Disease Group, they recommend that people use inhaled corticosteroids with moderate or severe COPD and with a history of exacerbations. The paper we were discussing earlier that was recently published in the American Journal of Medicine was conducted in Canada. Do you think the results there are transferable to a U.S. population, and what were the other clinically relevant findings that you thought were important? I would think that their results would be generalizable to a United States population as well. And then I think it's interesting that they saw an increased risk of both incident diabetes, and then I think they also saw an increased risk of people who already had diabetes that had insulin added to their regimen. What should the guidelines be for inhaled corticosteroid use in COPD patients? Well, I think that in general, the gold guidelines are very good for telling clinicians what sort of patients might be eligible for inhaled corticosteroids. I think the results of the study that I worked on and this new study from Canada would just say that if somebody is on inhaled corticosteroids, that I think the clinician and the patient need to be aware of the potential risk both for increasing the risk of developing diabetes as well as the risk of having poor glucose control. If you're just joining us today, I'm speaking with Dr. Chris Slator from the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine at the Portland VA Hospital in Portland, Oregon. We're discussing the association between inhaled corticosteroids and increased serum glucose levels. So how exactly or how carefully should you monitor serum glucose in patients who commence inhaled corticosteroids? Well, I don't think there's a right answer. I think that clinicians should just be aware of the potential association between inhaled steroids and both incident diabetes and glucose control. If it was my patient and I was starting somebody on inhaled steroids with diabetes, I would recommend that they, if they have a way of checking their blood sugars at home, that they do that and pay close attention. And then I also probably be interested in checking, say, something like a hemoglobin A1C within six to 12 weeks after starting an inhaled steroid as well to see if there's been any changes. And somebody who doesn't have diabetes but maybe has other risk factors, you know, such as obesity, I might be more inclined to check a fasting serum glucose within a couple months after starting inhaled steroids. Again, I don't think neither one of these studies can answer that question, but I think it just is something that the clinicians prescribing these medicines need to be aware of. In your own practice, what proportion of your patients have coexisting diabetes and COPD? Oh, I would say a large number. I don't know a percentage, but my guess would be on the range of at least 25 to 30 percent of my patients with COPD also have diabetes. And do you think with the aging population, this is going to be an increasingly greater dilemma in clinical practice of patients with COPD? Oh, yes, I definitely think so. I mean, I think the incidence of diabetes is increasing, incidence of COPD is increasing. Actually, I think we're seeing that as opposed to, say, 20 or 30 years ago when the sort of classic picture of somebody with COPD was somebody who was cachectic with a low body mass index, 
I think we're actually seeing more and more patients with COPD and who are obese and may already have diabetes or certainly be at a high risk for developing it. Do you think the combination of corticosteroids with a long-acting bronchodilator in a single device has caused an increase in steroid use amongst clinicians? I think so. I honestly don't know about any data that would support that, but that's certainly my impression that's led to an increased use. I think a lot of patients are on inhaled steroids as well that may or may not meet the gold criteria for being on them. What's new in the management of COPD in your practice? One thing that's new is the better understanding of when and in what patients different levels of maintenance therapy might be required. I think we have some options nowadays with long-acting anticholinergics and a variety of different long-acting beta agonists and inhaled corticosteroids, both in individual medications or in combination ones. So I think that there's increased use of multiple medication classes in our patients, which may lead to improvements in their health. Do you think that as a group, doctors are managing COPD patients any better than they were 10 years ago? In some ways, probably yes. I think we have more medication options. I think more and more people are realizing that non-medication options, such as you know pulmonary rehabilitation, are out there. I think the flip side is, though, is that there are now potentially more medications. People may prescribe those medications in patients that they may not be indicated for. That is, that patients with, you know, say, mild COPD may be more likely to be put on a long-acting controller-type medication more than they were in the past. What future research then do you think would be most appropriate to further examine a connection between COPD and patients on inhaled corticosteroids and diabetes? So I think more studies like the one I did in terms of observational cohorts are necessary. It's relatively unlikely that we're going to have a large enough randomized controlled trial to really answer this question. And I think the benefits of doing observational studies are that you can look at different doses, of inhaled steroids, you can usually look for a longer period of time. In general, patients who enroll in a randomized controlled trial are healthier and have less comorbidities than patients out in, you know, sort of real practice sites. Studies like the one that just came out in the American Journal of Medicine and the one that I worked on uh, can be helpful in terms of looking at these associations. I think also it's always important to look at underlying mechanisms for donor relationship between inhaled steroids and glucose and diabetes as well as other you know, side effects. So better either animal models or in vitro models that can look at some of these questions will be useful for the future. Well, my thanks to you, Dr. Slater, for being our guest today. We've been discussing the association of inhaled corticosteroid use with serum glucose concentration and the risk-benefit equation for patients with COPD. I'm your host, Dr. Mary Lushars. You've been listening to ReachMD, a channel for medical professionals. We welcome your comments and questions through our website at reachmd.com, which now features our entire medical show library in on-demand podcasts. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to this month's special series, Focus on Diabetes. For a program guide and complete list of shows, please visit us at reachmd.com. You're listening to ReachMD, a national platform for the medical community. All of the programming on this channel is intended for licensed healthcare professionals only. While we hope you find it helpful, remember that it is not meant to serve as a substitute for your own clinical judgment.
Although this channel is to be used exclusively by medical professionals, if you are a consumer who chooses to listen, you should not rely on our programming as professional medical advice or use it to replace any relationship with a qualified healthcare professional. For medical concerns, including decisions about medications or other treatments, consumers should always consult their physician or, in serious cases, seek immediate assistance from emergency personnel. Appearance of a medical professional on ReachMD does not constitute an endorsement of products, sponsors, or advertisements heard on this channel. For more information, please visit our website at ReachMD.com. Medical professionals who register on our website can access schedule information, provide feedback, and receive programming updates. Thank you for listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Hi, I'm Dr. Lee Friedman, host of Medical Breakthroughs from Penn Medicine, inviting you to visit our online audio library at ReachMD.com, where you can access thousands of free on-demand podcasts. Here's a sample of one. Maybe we should start with just a basic question about prevalence. How common is hearing loss in the United States? Well, it depends on how you define hearing loss. Of course, as you age, everybody gets some hearing loss. So in that sense, if you're over... 55 or so, there's a very strong chance you have some level of hearing loss. Now, how many people need aidable hearing is a different question. And of course, that too is subjective uh-huh. because there are many patients out there who, as you know, feel they're here fine, but their families are up in arms because they always feel they're repeating things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's a very common problem and it affects most, if not all of us as we age. So the decision to use some type of device or to take some intervention really is a lifestyle, personal choice type of situation? Exactly. The hearing aid, it's not like uh, having a cancer where mm-hmm. you say as a physician, we, well, we need to intervene or mm-hmm. it's a, a life-threatening situation. Mm-hmm. Hearing aids are a lifestyle decision in the sense that anybody with hearing loss is technically eligible for a hearing aid, but only a subset of those will feel the need to proceed with that. And it's really up to the patient and their family once the hearing loss. To hear more of this interview from our Medical Breakthroughs from Penn Medicine series, visit ReachMD.com, where on our website you can also hear other programs hosted by me and thousands of other on-demand podcasts from our library of other programs on ReachMD Radio, the channel for medical professionals. Thank you for listening.